Welcome to the Books Brothers Podcast, where each week we read, discuss, and share with the hope of becoming better men and have a few laughs in the process. Join us each week as we learn, connect, and are challenged by each other. The Books Brothers are currently reading The Mask of Masculinity, How Men Can Embrace Vulnerability, Create Strong Relationships, and Live Their Fullest Lives by Lewis House. This week, Thomas leads our discussion on the material mask. One of the wealthiest individuals ever, John Rockefeller, was once asked how much money is enough. His response was, just a little bit more. So whether you have a lot of money or not, finances always seem to be a source of stress in our lives and an area in which we try to seek comfort and identity. Listen in as we discuss our relationship with the material mask and how ultimately seeking gratefulness is the key to our relationship with finances. After the show, please share your comments and feedback by emailing us at connect at booksbrotherspodcast.com. Does anyone, everyone want to go around and share something that they were grateful for today? About an hour and a half ago, I was able to walk out my door and go for a run and get a workout in in the middle of the afternoon. Oh, and it was beautiful. And I'm really grateful I have the kind of uh, work position to be able to do that just on a random Wednesday afternoon. It's awesome. Great. We won't tell your boss. (laughs) Oh, he's all about it. That's one reason I love him. It's cool. I did the same thing today. And it was hey, nice, very hot, nice. but I'm grateful for yeah the <laughs> the season finale of the Wheel of Time TV show. <laughs> yeah, it was great. <laughs> you are you already watched it? Oh yeah, for sure. Nice. nice. I mean, I loved the books, and the books are drastically different than the TV show. But the season mm. finale was pleasantly surprisingly good in my opinion good good i was gonna say something similar uh on the work related front just thankful to have a very flexible job and understanding workplace my uh son so my mother-in-law watches the boys tuesdays and thursdays but she has like cataracts so she had eye surgery this week so um, Graham has had to stay with me Tuesday, Thursday. And so I like reached out to my boss late last week and was like, Hey, like I can try to come into the office and I think I can keep him entertained for like half the day. Do you think I could, you know, work from home the, in the afternoons? And he was like, why don't you just work from home both days, the entire day. And then like today, yeah, I just felt horrible. Like, I, I don't know. I could not, I think it was a migraine. Thankfully it didn't, you know, didn't get any worse, but, um, I just could not shake this migraine. And I'm like, you know, I just, I can't, I'm not doing anything at work. I literally was like in like a collab room with the lights off, just like the fluorescent lighting was making the headache work worse. And I'm Ouch. like, and I'm, I'm not even interacting with anyone. Like <laughs> I just need to like get home and be comfortable. And I was, you know, I'm like, Hey, I'm going to go, like, I'm going to work from home and just having that flexibility to where I can take care of my kids, take care of my own health and still be able to have the flexibility of the job and be trusted to get my work done. I I appreciate that. Those fluorescent lights are no joke. (laughs) All right. So welcome back everyone. This week we are discussing chapter three of Lewis Howe's book, The Mask of Masculinity. And chapter three is all about the material mask. I will sum it up in my own words. It explores what we as men get out of material wealth and power with it. We're going to talk about how we use material wealth to bolster our egos. The 
chapter starts out with a quote, as other chapters have. And the quote goes something like this. A man's ledger does not tell what he is or what he is worth. Count what is in him, not what is on him, if you would know what he is worth, whether rich or poor. And I think that's a bit dated, so my translation would be, bruh, yo bling don't mean a thing. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty much all it's saying. The guy yeah, lived from crazy. 1813 to 1887, so that's I would say that's fairly outdated. Yeah. yeah. Lewis was just, he needed that extra paragraph or something to get the chapter started, I guess. Bruh. So, bruh. So I guess uh, one thing I was thinking about is, as men, why we care so much about material stuff, our earning power, our ability to be a valuable asset in the marketplace, our ability to move up the, the ladder in our careers. And they hit on this a little bit in the chapter. And, and that's, you know, one theory is that society has a deep and unquestioned understanding that for males, the burden of providing and being able to provide is a requirement kind of thrust upon us by fate. We can't, you know, we can't really help it. We just have to deal with it and provide. And if a man can't provide in a monetary way, especially, he's seen as less than. So our quest for material wealth can be seen as an evolutionary trait, uh, which makes a lot of sense. In the past, you know, a man's ability to provide determined all of his prospects in life for the most part, um, because, you know, that was necessary for survival. You know, if, if he couldn't provide for himself and his family, um, there were real consequences to that in a world with, with uh, food scarcity and things like that. So typically, I think, you know, throughout history, the guy with the most resources has been the most attractive um, to both men and women. You know, for men, it's they're attracted to that power. They want to be like that guy. They want to emulate that guy. And um, a lot of times the way in which they get that power as a male isn't as important as the fact that they have it. And um, for women, obviously, uh, I think that they have a innate need to be, you know, cared for and to feel safe and secure. And as a man who can provide, that's that's something that I feel like uh, is pretty important. So Lewis, just a little bit of background about the author again. He was playing football uh, as a pro or semi-pro, I guess. And at one point he got hurt. And I think he didn't he say, guys, that he spent a year to a year and a half like on his sister's couch. Yeah. Just yeah. just kind of couch surfing, not really having, uh, I guess, direction or making a lot of money. Seemed like it was pretty low time for him and he was kind of broke and probably, you know, he didn't have athletics to fall back on as a means to, you know, provide or, you know, provide in a monetary way or a kind of a, a mental or self-esteem kind of way anymore. So I think his point in this chapter is that the belief that we have to provide and this is just kind of fate for us to have to deal with is really ingrained and it leads us to overvalue it in our lives and and really attach it to our identity as a man. And if you've ever watched Breaking Bad, you know, as a viewer, it's hard to hate the main character, Walter White. Even though he cooked meth and murdered people, his motivation was always to provide for his family. And at one point, 
He says, a man provides even when he's not appreciated, respected, or even loved. A man has to do what a man has to do. And it is really hard to argue with that mentality as a man, even if you're looking at a guy who's done horrible things in order to achieve that end. Um, We all kind of seem to want to live up to that standard, no matter how we get there. And I would say, you know, men who can't provide really feel invisible. You know, they they feel like they they don't have any value uh, in this world and probably deal with a lot of shame and uncertainty. I also wanted to mention the fact this book sort of quotes the verse in Timothy, I believe it is, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, which has been, I mean, to me, interpreted a lot of different ways. But in the in the book, Lewis quotes, I'm not sure if it's a quote or just his own words, but he says, the lack of money and resources is the root of all evil, which does make a lot of sense when you think about how you know, desperate people can get in situations like that. So I wanted to open it up to you guys. Um, my first, my first question is sort of on a scale of one to 10, how much do you guys all think about money? Why do you think you put too much thought into it? The right amount of thought? What do you guys think? I'll just say to start it off, I guess I've noticed about myself, the more money that I make, the more money my wife and I make, the more I think about money. Mm-hmm. So I've seen like a direct correlation with like how much income we have. I think about it more. I worry about it more. Um, it's been something that's fascinated me, you know, coming out of college, going into the nonprofit sphere where I had to fundraise my own salary. And when I think of like what I used to pay for rent and how much I, I lived off of, compared to what it is now. It's not necessarily a bad thing in and of itself. Um, but like you were saying, the love of, of that money can be the root of all kinds of evil. And so it is interesting to me how much I think about it comparative. You would think, Oh, the more you make, the less you'll worry. That hasn't necessarily been how it's been for me. I think you asked, why do you think I do this? I think some of it is like, this is me personally, the more I have, the more I feel like self-reliant in a sense. So like I put not like I think about it actively, like I put more pressure on myself, but I think when you have less, there's like less to lose and, you know, kind of factoring in like the spiritual side, you're trusting and relying on a higher power to provide for you when you can't always see like, what's beyond the next quarter or the next year. And when you have more and you can invest more, you can save more. All of a sudden you start looking at your savings account and finding security and how much you have to live off of if something dire would happen. And so I think, yeah, I put way too much thought into it considering how little thought I used to put into it. Scale of one to 10, what do you say? Oh, I didn't answer your original question. (laughs) My gut response is seven to eight. That was mine also. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, assuming, I'm assuming 10 is thinking about it nonstop. It's like obsessing yeah. about it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I feel like eight for me. Sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. I think that I think about money more often than I think I do. <laughs> if that makes sense. Mm. I don't I think say that eight. I thought that like <laughs> subconsciously, you mean? Yeah, I probably like you think about it more than you're aware than I'm than I realize that I do. But to me, when I was thinking about this, usually I want to be able to buy things for my children or for my wife. 
to make our lives easier or better in some way. Like we got a new house last year and it's an older house that hasn't been updated in like 30 years. And so a lot of our plans and our projects are updating the house and trying to make it look nice and modern. And, and obviously those things cost a lot of money. So at least right now, when I think about money, it's if we had to buy things, how much does it cost? How much can we save so that we can get some projects knocked out? How much money do we need to be saving for our kids' Christmas presents or their birthdays or when they turn 16 to buy a car and sending them off to college? At least that's where I am right now. I'm happy with where I am salary-wise, being able to provide all those things and allow Emily to stay at home and just be with the kids. But I also find myself at times comparing other couples, families that are our age, where both the husband and wife or both spouses work. And just thinking like, man, they just, they probably have so much more money than a family with only one person who makes an income. And they're able to, you know, go on more vacations or buy better things for their kids or, you know, buy a house that has everything that they wanted and needed in the house and not have to do anything to update it. That's where I find myself comparing myself to others. But yeah, it's, it's not like I'm wanting a ton more money. On page 66 of this chapter, Lewis, he just got like in the middle of uh, the section about Thai. And Lewis says, I've always wanted to be financially free and make enough money to do the things I love in life. I think that desire motivates a lot of the people who have found success in business. Unlike many of my peers, I've never been one to flash my money around. Maybe it's my Midwestern roots. And I was mm-hmm. like, yeah, that sounds like me also. I want to have <laughs> enough money to do the things that I want to do and to be happy, but I don't want to be flashy about it. I don't, I don't need to buy a, a Maserati. I don't need to flaunt the money and the things that I have, but I want to have enough money to be financially free, not owe debt to anyone and provide a good life for my kids and my wife. You think you'd want a Maserati if you had $20 million in the bank? (laughs) Honestly, I don't know. It'd be fun to have, but it's weird to think about that, isn't it? It is. It's really weird. But at the same time, Later in the chapter, I forget who it was, but it, she is like a singer with the time Alanis money. Morissette. To sing. Yeah, that was it. Alanis yeah. Morissette. All those, having a ton of money just puts a lot of eyes on you. And I've never wanted eyes on me. Like the paparazzi, right, right. I don't want people following me around when I go to the grocery store or the gas station, mm-hmm. you know? I don't want to have that kind of publicity. You don't want to be a target in a sense, right? Yeah. So having a Maserati that you'd, you'd stand out with that type of car. So like I said, it'd be another, cool to have, another but good, I don't know uh, if I would actually want it. Another good Dumb and Dumber comparison when they buy the car and get all those crazy <laughs> outfits and drive around, <laughs> drive around Aspen. Ooh, Here you go. Yeah. Lamborghini. Here you go. 250 and Dow might want to hold on to that one. I think of... I think of an analogy, though, it's not an analogy, it's a theory. I remember when we were moving from Oklahoma City to Denver, our pastor 
you know, we were all loaded up on the truck. We went to bed that night and he was just super kind and came uh, to our apartment, you know, gave us one last hug and sent us off. And we had to throw one last thing in the truck in the rental. And I'll never forget. He made a comment like, I have this theory that no matter how big of a truck you have or like how little like stuff you actually possess, every person will find a way, every mover will find a way to like have their belongings all the way to like the end of like the truck to where it's like full. Fill it all and, the way up. Uh, and so yeah, fill it all the way up. So like you start off and you're like, at least if you're like me and really into Tetris, not that I play it, but just like the game of like, all right, how can I be as efficient as possible packing this truck? And then all of a sudden you get to the end and you're just kind of like chucking it in there. And it's almost, yeah, it's like, man, I almost, I almost don't have enough room. And I remember like I had to throw one last thing and he's like, see, like, look, your stuff's almost full. And I, I think of that analogy. I don't know why that came to me when it comes to this, because like I said before, starting off with much more humble means in the nonprofit world, it's like I had food on the table. I could go buy stuff if I wanted, not as many things, but as our income has increased, the things we buy have become gradually more expensive or instead of buying something used or at an auction or at a thrift store, now we'll buy it new or at this website or like, and so I think of that like similar analogy. So yeah, I mean, Thomas, you kind of joke like, well, if you had 20 million, it's like, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't think any of us will be there anytime soon. So it's impossible to, to know, but it wouldn't surprise me if it's like, yeah, now that the, the size of the rental truck has increased and with more money or whatever. And so the things that we think about the lifestyle, like changes, it's very easy to fall into that temptation of falling into yeah. that as well. Does that yeah. I don't know, man. Yeah. yeah. We have a podcast though. I mean, 20 million is not out of the question at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I know like I know. A break to go to one of our sponsors. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Garrett. So with what you're saying, that reminded me of like something that Ruth has seen at the hospital. So Ruth works at the children's hospital here in Phoenix and every once in a while they have a kid that comes in that gets treatment that's homeless. And they, she's told me before about how homeless individuals in these homeless kids, they tend to, you know, our kids who've like been in the foster system and such, they tend to be very, even more attached to their possessions. And I think it's interesting to see that you see the same thing play out at all levels. You see this desire for more, this desire for things. And yeah, I think that there's, there's always going to be that. I think, especially when you're talking about like filling that truck, like to the last little bit, like I think people, we just, as people, we just get attached to our things and whether you're, not making that much money or they're making a lot of money. I think any, anyone can have an issue or struggle with the idea of like a material mask of putting value in what they own or who, you know, um, yeah, there are things defining them. Thomas, um, there were two quotes in the early section that, that I wrote down that I think really stick out. Money is like a pit bull. It can save your life or turn around and kill you. And then mm. adversity makes men, prosperity makes monsters. Getting back to that your original question, I, like that one a lot. I would say, you, you know this the most, right? Back before COVID happened, I'd taken a decent chunk of money and kind of put it aside in the stock market and 
I got pretty uh, pretty enthralled in it, I would say. I mean, I was thinking about it constantly. I mean, minute by minute, hour by hour. If 8.30 came around and the stock market was red, it was a bad day. And if it was green, it was a good day. Mm-hmm. Um, and just getting so wrapped up into um, just wanting to see the growth immediately, almost like I was a day trader in that sense, right? Like I was putting it in stocks, putting it in mutual funds, right? So it was a matter of wanting to see long-term growth. But I just wanted to see that short-term growth so quickly that if I wanted to get out and make profit, I could. So I think back then, right, it was more... I was thinking about it every day. I would be a 10. And I think ever since I've gotten out of the stock market in that sort of additional surplus income that can go into it, I've focused a lot less on money. Um, and I know that you know my contributions to my 401k are, are something that's going to be over the next 30, 40 years, right? That... Uh, that I can't touch anyway. So why, why worry about it? But, um, I don't know. I think, uh, I think right now I'm probably at like a, a seven or eight, but I think the most thing, like the thing that we're talking about and stealing, like what you're mentioning with the foster kids, like their thing that they're attached to, like, I think what we all want is like security rather than the money itself. Like the money provides a level of security um, to do the things that we want to do to live comfortably. Um, but Garrett, to your point, right. The trust in the higher power, the, uh, the recognition that, um, you know, we, we really have so much to be grateful, which is kind of a sneak peek into what this chapter is really about. Um, kind of reveals itself as, uh, as you take off the material mask. Yeah. It's good. Rob, what about when it comes to your AC? See, (laughs) yeah, you better keep that part in. Marianne's going to laugh at that one. Um, As he sits here, as he sits here shirtless because it's too hot. I think that I am always strapped to see how I can save money. Um, where I can eliminate. Do you think your upbringing, were your parents like that, Rob? So, I mean, I was raised in Midwest humble roots. I would, you know, my parents didn't necessarily have money and we worked for everything that we did. I I worked slinging milk jugs at hy V from the time I was, um, is a good place. Yeah. I mean, when, when you work for it and you have the, um, work ethic, and, and you develop a good work ethic, you also look at how you can cut costs. Um, and if it re- involves a little sacrifice to cut the cost to then take that money and use it elsewhere. It's uh, for me, it's been almost like a game, which is the competitive mass. Or, or the and I think, I think there's like, will. I think there's like wisdom in that though, too, of stewarding your, finance as well. Right. There's a lot of wisdom that comes with that. It's a fine line. Um, You know, I'm green over here, guys. I'm green. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) But saying money's nice too, isn't it? I can identify a lot with you, Rob. I actually think my, I don't know, maybe Stalin and to an extent Garrett too, just having moved, you know, out of the Midwest to some more high cost of living places. Like when I look at housing out here in Hawaii specifically, it's like the down payment is the full cost of a house where I'm from. 
And so like, I basically gave up on the traditional Midwest belief of what it looks like to have a certain level of wealth, because it's just like, I think the cost of living index here is 193, which is almost double the average of the nation. So I guess for me, I got more into like Rob said, maybe how much do I have in my portfolio or you know, I'm going to read books about like the fire movement, the financially independent retire early and try to learn more about how I can kind of hack my own life to where a certain savings ratio is, is meaning I'm successful or more successful than other people, or I'm way above average. And that makes me feel better as maybe a man or a, Mm -hmm. I don't know, just a human being like those kind of things. I definitely have put way too much stock in, in the last few years, especially just because I don't know, I think especially throughout COVID, I maybe selfishly was like, oh man, there's a lot of people struggling right now, paycheck to paycheck. They're relying on the government for assistance. And in a selfish way, I looked at that as like, oh, that makes me feel better because I don't have to worry about that. Right. And it's kind of like one of those sad moments where you look back and you're like, man, instead of feeling bad for them, I had a a little bit of a split feeling of like, yeah, I felt bad for sure. But at the same time, like I felt pride in a way that I probably shouldn't have in my own situation, you know? And I think that that speaks to the heart of how money can really start to become an identity thing rather than just something that's, you know, you manage, like you said, Stalin, that you just manage well. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Did you hear about the recent scientific breakthrough? The happiest couples happen to have very similar bowels. Based on this finding, we've created a new type of dating app, Dumper. Not your typical dating app. Forget about fake pics and small talk. Dumper sets you up on a blind date by scientifically matching you with a mate based on your gut bacteria. Your soulmate's probably sending in her stool sample right now. So don't wait and sign up today to receive your free sample kit. I think I nailed it. And now back to the show. All right. So Lewis talked about how he was desperate for a little while couch surfing on his sister's couch. When he mentions that, did you guys think of a time in your own life where you were like, oh, yeah, I've been there. I've basically felt like I had zero opportunities, zero money zero like negative money yeah what do you guys think so i think you guys will appreciate this story so when uh when i had finished grad school i was i mean i had pretty much paid grad school it was like through loans and stuff and like we were running out of money and such and we knew we knew we wanted to move somewhere and so we started like looking at where we're going to move and we decided phoenix is where we wanted to end up and so ruth and i flew out here for like a week and in that week i had like four or five interviews and it was like back to back and like while i was in interviews she was going and checking at apartments and stuff just trying to find a place to find a place to live and we were staying at this really really cheap hotel super cheap rob you'd be really proud of us and um <laughs> super <laughs> roadway in thomas so, so we were i think we were we spent like four or five days in phoenix and we bought a loaf of bread we bought peanut butter and i don't know no we just bought a loaf of bread and basically we were like almost completely out of money at this point and we decided that what we were going to do is each morning at the continental breakfast we would 
take the little peanut butter and take the jelly packet things Dang. and use those like later <laughs> in the day to like make our lunches and uh, spend some money on dinner, but basically just try to save as much money as we could. And maybe a couple we, green bananas. <laughs> enjoy those. Yeah. So we did that the first day <laughs> and the next morning we were down in the continental breakfast area and the guy who's like restocking it, we're just talking to him being friendly and he's talking about how, man, he's like a lot of people have been like stealing these peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> <laughs> and Ruth and I are like, oh, I don't know. I go, that's oh, that sounds like some some really deviant people. Um, but that was, was probably like, like, yeah. it was like, hey, you distract him while I snag snag the goods. Yeah. So that was like one that we like we always laugh about. How, yeah, I mean, we were quote unquote resourceful, right? But we really. Dirty we really didn't have a lot of finances since we decided to do. And then whenever we got an apartment, I remember for the first month that we were living out here, we used a Tupperware container and we used camping chairs for our kitchen table. And so it's funny to look back and, and think that we did that now. Cause you know, I feel like now we're, we're pretty stable and secure, but I, I'd like to think that through that, it, it really strengthened our marriage. Uh, there's some research out there that shows that, people who marry younger when you don't have money end up being more like successful in their marriage. They have longer marriages, happier marriages. Cause you can't, you know, I think money a lot of times can be a way that we like solve problems is if you have an issue, you spend the money on it, solve the problem. But I think when you don't have finances, sometimes, you know, you got to have a certain amount of finances. And I think that money helps solve some, can help solve some problems that can cause marital conflict at times. Yeah. I can't top that, Stalin, but uh, <laughs> it reminds me of of a, a similar time, and it's actually funny reflecting on it now. But I mean, so I worked during college, uh, worked like twenty four hours a week, but a lot of the money would go towards rent and groceries and stuff. So I really wouldn't profit that much every month. Um, I think when I graduated college, I probably had like a thousand, fifteen hundred bucks really to my name, um, at least in a, a primary account. But you, you would know the exact number. Something like that. It, <laughs> it, it sticks out. Of it was less than like 1500 bucks. And so then I, I moved to Illinois with my job and um, my apartment was involved in a fire like a, a month into moving there. And a, a guy had fallen asleep and essentially had had a pizza going or something on the stove and the top section of my apartment, like everything got smoked out and his like straight up got burnt. And, uh, quick, quick question. How do you cook a pizza on a stove? I think he fell asleep drunk. I don't know what he did, dude. Okay. He cooked a pizza Tontinos, on a wood oven dude. stove. <laughs> Those things are flammable. Something. Maybe it was in the oven, Stalin. Thank you for your correction. Oh, okay. <laughs> but uh, anyways, so I had lost a bunch of stuff and I, I actually didn't have renter's insurance at the time, believe it or not. Uh, it wasn't a requirement <laughs> to get into the apartment to have renter's insurance. So I, did, I didn't have it set up. And uh, so I had to throw a bunch of stuff away. And I remember... Mm when I was getting into a new spot, I was grabbing some things out of the dumpster, uh, like a coffee table. And mm. I used that coffee table because I wanted to be one resourceful. It was a perfectly okay coffee table. And 
we have been using that. I have been using that coffee table for the past 10 years. We finally <laughs> just replaced it. Like Marianne's parents had another coffee table that they gave us like two months ago, but I had had that coffee table for like 10 years. So I think, um, I don't know. It's just funny to look back on that. You know, I think the material mask has been real in my life in some ways, but then there's ways where it's like, it's a coffee table. It works. It, it's fine. It doesn't matter. Like I'm not going to go spend $300 on a coffee table when this one was free and it's works just fine. I hear you, Rob. Yeah. I'm the same way. <laughs> so Thomas, you're, the question was when have you felt most broke or most desperate? I think those are two separate yeah. times in my life. I felt most broke in oh, college. Yeah. Good point. Which at that point, it didn't really matter because everyone was broke. Nobody had money in college. But I think the most broke I felt is senior year and then right after graduation because student loans, you had to start paying student loans. I didn't have any job lined up after college. I was just working at Starbucks at the student union, making like nine bucks an hour, 10 bucks an hour, something like that. And that was before they. It was student loans too, right? Yeah, right. Um, which is, I mean, it was fine at the time. Rent at, in Springfield was extremely low, but I had no plan for the future and no job lined up. I had just gotten a degree in religious studies and had recently quit the church that I was working at, running the youth group. So what am I supposed to do with a degree in religious studies not going into ministry. <laughs> so I think so many people can relate with that. <laughs> yeah. I think that's when I felt the most broke, just mm. having very, very little money with student loans to pay off and no plan for the future. Again, it wasn't the most heartbreaking moment because a lot of people are probably in similar situations and just getting out of college. I was kind of expecting that not to have money going out of college. But the time that I felt most desperate, I don't even know if you all know this, but I was fired from my first big boy job mm. after over two and a half years. And I mean, technically they had reasons to do it, but I was doing things that almost everyone on my team was also doing. I was essentially spending more time building up a tool and a dashboard for our team and doing like escalation type work rather than doing some of the help desk tier one type work. Mm. And they did not appreciate that. It was an awful job anyways. And it actually turned out to be a blessing. But at the time, yeah. like Emily and I were recently married and just having to go through being fired from your first real job yeah like that is very shameful to me mm. um i had a lot of guilt and just like questioning who i was as a person as a man like why did i have to put myself in this position why did i make those choices to get fired and now i we had to rely on my wife's salary to support us until I can find another job. 
Mm -hmm. And I don't know, having to tell my family and friends about what happened was also shameful and just living with that guilt. Like I didn't feel like I was a good person after that happened. A good man, a good husband, a good son either. So that was one of the, one of the lowest points in my life. I'd say just feeling shame of that. But in the long run, it turned out to be a very good thing. And I think it's one of the steps that got to me to where I am today. So thanks for sharing that, man. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't didn't know about that. That's really hard. Yeah. Did did you want to hide it when that happened? Did you want to like kind of play it off as if, you know, maybe if I get a new job really quick, I can just talk about that or like, I I don't know. I mean, that would be a shame. Absolutely. Yeah. Like most people that I talk to, I just say it. I'd been at that job for two and a half years and then I, I hated it, which I did. And then I found something better afterwards. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, I never really, really talked about this. Yeah. But the thing is, it's like, that has nothing to do with who you are as a person. You know, it's just yeah. a, it's just an entry level freaking job. Why do we take so seriously? You know, like, True. come on, bro. Yeah. Like a monkey could probably do everything that we did two years of like college. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like when I Especially look back, job. I'm like, are you kidding? Like, why did I take that so seriously? That's, that was kind of a joke. And I, I got paid joke money to do it too. Oh, so yeah, why did I even sure. care? Yeah. Do you feel, Matt, like looking back on that, Matt, is there anything that you feel like you would have done differently in the aftermath? So after, you know, essentially after they laid you off, is there anything you would have done differently in the way that you went about things? Or do you feel like the way you went about things is, was the best for you? Afterwards, I don't think so. I don't know. I think it pushed me to actually go and apply for more jobs. I had yeah. been looking around a little bit for years for a new job. And this is kind of the the push to actually go out and apply for new jobs. Yeah. But I don't know, maybe talking about it more with close friends, with people would have helped, helped me process what I was working through and feeling. Yeah. I probably should have done that. I didn't even like talking about it to Emily because Mm -hmm. every time we talked about it, I was ashamed and I just didn't want to talk through those feelings. So, yeah, yeah, I guess I mean, talk about it to other people. I I mean, I think it really goes back to just like how I don't know. It seems as though it's more of a male thing than female thing. I'm sure we all experience this at some level, but our identity is tied and our ability to provide and to be able to do something well. And so it sounds like I mean, the way you describe it there, it sounds like you were working on other important things. They just didn't really maybe want you to work on those things. But I think it's. Yeah, it's hard not to have kind of identity questions when when that arises. I think I know myself and Thomas have recently gone through job changes. And um, Thomas, you were for your job. They they reached out to you, right? Yeah. Okay. But I know like for myself and I know like Rob, we've talked about this before about how when you are applying for jobs, there is a lot of like identity. And like I know Rob and I have talked about how you apply for a job and you start to like envision what it would look like to do that job and you build up thoughts, you connect emotions to it. And then, you know, weeks go by, you don't hear anything. And it's like, Oh man, job stuff can be very hard, hard to not put our identity in because yeah, it's the way that we provide. It's whether you care for people. Yeah. When something good happens at work, we want to share it. Um, when something bad happens, you know, we, we don't usually share those, you know, maybe we don't even share this with our spouse 
Cause I think that we do feel, you know, if you're spending, you know, we spend most of our time at work. And so I think it's easy to, it's another easy area to put identity in. Yeah. Thomas, I, I feel like you can relate to this. I know we we're talking about kind of the, the male lens. Um, I think Thomas and I's wives are probably pretty similar in nature. I know that my wife, um, this whole identity around money, it's been a touchy subject for her. I mean, when we were getting ready to get married, there was so much of, are you sure you're, you're ready for this? Are you sure that, you know, I'm not a traditional like wife that's going to bring in, I'm not a nurse. I don't, I'm not this, I'm not that. Right. Like I work contractually. Um, I don't know what I'm going to make every year. My taxes are going to be insane at the end of the year if I've actually worked because so many people are paying me um, or different people, right? Um, But it's beautiful to watch someone who truly loves what they do. Um, And, you know, as a singer, actress, performer, like she works for free, guys. I mean, she literally... Yeah does works for a theater in town where they don't pay her anything and she's driving she's rehearsing she's spending resources to do what she loves um going negative if you will in terms of uh you know what the world would say about that but it's beautiful to watch someone be liberated from money and not be motivated by it and be doing it because it's truly what they love. And, um, I don't know. I just wanted to provide that kind of feminine perspective as well. Cause I think, uh, I think us men can be liberated and, and do, do the things that, that we love. And Stalen, I think your latest example of, you know, quitting your traditional nine to five PT job to, take something risky, Thomas, you're doing the same thing to, to, uh, I don't know, roll up your sleeves and try something new and find a new joy. And I think that's, that's commendable with, with the risk associated as, as we've been talking about a male being a provider. Yeah. I think too, like as I've, as me personally, as I've gotten older, I've wanted my, how much work I put in to mean something. And so if I put a lot of work into it, I want to be compensated more for it, I think. And, and so I want to be able to provide value. Um, I think that sometimes that can be something that when you have a a job that is, you know, this next, this new role I I took on here, there's a commission component. And I like the idea of that because I like that when I work harder, it means that I get, you know, essentially the, positive benefit of that. And that's not everything. Um, but I do think that sometimes that's a good motivator for you to really push into do something that's more challenging or more, more hard. Rob, what you mentioned is, is interesting. I mean, you and I have both have wives that put us in the traditional male seat of provider because I have the stable income. You have the stable income. Our wives have variable incomes that are based off of a career field that is you know, for the average person, not super high paying, but very rewarding in like a, another sense. But, um, you know, I think about how quickly those expectations of, you know, the traditional, the man goes to work all day and provides while the woman keeps the house or takes care of the kids or, you know, whatever they, you know, expected back in the 50s or 60s during kind of the nuclear family era. The 
the speed at which that cultural norm has flipped on its head, I feel like leaves men in a really weird spot where they still feel the pressure to be the provider. But then again, it's kind of like if you take too much pride in that, maybe you get judged for it. You know what I mean? It's, it's kind of like, well, you shouldn't really expect to be the provider, right? And when I'm saying this, I'm thinking about some of the divorce statistics about divorces where the female made more than the, the husband. And that seems to be correlated positively with divorce in general, where mm. the guy can't really handle it. You know, he, he just feels emasculated because his wife is providing more than he is. And you know, I, I just, I guess I wonder, um, you know, if anybody out there sort of has thoughts about that, but I've definitely thought about it before and how like, yeah, it, it's pressure, right. To provide a little bit more, but it's also something that's really rewarding to me, at least to, to have that as a piece of my identity to fall back on and be like, well, you know, at least I provide for my wife and that feels good. Yeah. Garrett. Oh, I, I hit the hand raise or whatever. Cause you're like, if anyone out there experienced and <laughs> such whatever, a subtle and, way. Oh, I, I, think know, I'm probably, I know you. I think probably I'm probably the only one in the, in the group that is in those, in the, in those shoes currently, but that, I was more just kind of making a joke, but I mean, I think, Wait, I Gary, think the Gary, idea. Gary, you seen you got a sugar mama? Hey, <laughs> I do. Yeah. <laughs> She's worked. Yeah. She's worked her, she's worked her tail off. But yeah, I mean it, I think like part of it too, is just thinking of like a partnership, you know, if it wasn't for her savings account, I wouldn't have been able to start grad school, which really helped me in the trajectory of my career. And if I hadn't worked and had a stable job while she was in med school, she would have had to work or taken out insane loans, you know? So like, I think part of it is not, is truly not viewing things as like her, versus me. And I've been, I've been like bookmarking different chapters and I feel like our conversation ties in some things from the stoic mask that talks about how we're driven by our beliefs. The problem is that many of our beliefs aren't beliefs at all. They're faulty assumptions built on fear. They get baked into culture. That's page 35 Uh, because we're even more afraid of addressing them than we are of addressing the fear that created them. And then I can't find the exact quote in the athlete mask, what we talked about last week, but, um, you were talking about like the shame or whatever mad of getting fired. And I haven't gotten fired before, but I've felt like the shame of like not having a plan, not feeling like I'm living up to my potential. And uh, there's, I can't find the line in, in the athlete mask where he talks about like dominance, right? Like there's this competitive, like we're not gladiators anymore, but we have this, like we have to dominate. We have to be the dominant one. And a lot of that can be played out on the field, but then Maybe to your point, Thomas, and like the statistics of divorce or whatever, it's like, well, if I make more, I'm worth more figuratively and literally. And so I'm the dominant one in the relationship. Maybe. I don't know. Oh, but good point. I found a line in page 47 where he quotes a guy named Joe Ehrman or Ehrman where nothing is nothing is quite so painful as feeling you don't quite measure up uh, as a man. And so just kind of like I'm thinking of like tying these separate things in where we're talking about like shame of maybe like losing a job or I didn't like, there's these things that like we encounter that attack our identity, right? Like whether it's the analogy of filling up the moving truck, it's like, all right, we're making more now. Well, now we have to project something by increasing our standard of living and all of a sudden keeping like up with the Joneses. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Keeping up with the Joneses. Or it's like, man, I, I'm leaving the nonprofit 
sector, which was my story. And like, I didn't know what was next. I, I never did an internship in college and I've shared that before not to rehash it, but there was a lot of identity issues there of like, I'm, I'm literally like wasting my life. That was the desperate. And all I needed was just to take a, a big deep breath. Like <laughs> there's a lot of life to be lived, a lot of years to work. Um, and then, yeah, like when we were moving back to Oklahoma city where my wife was finally, after all the long years, blood, sweat, and tears was going to be compensated, uh, more accurately for what she's worth for the amount of time that she's put in. Then it was like, oh man, now, now the tables have officially turned where she is making more, you know, what should I do? Stuff like that. Um, what does that mean for the type of work I should look into? I mean, we even talked at some point at one point about like me just staying home with the kids. Like it had like very genuine, genuine conversations about that. we got advice from others about it. And, uh, there's like, when you peel back these like onion layers, like, all right, now, now we're actually like at the door where we're facing this scenario of who makes more and the, and the tide turns and could I stay home or should I stay home? What does that mean? What would people think of me if I did? What do people think of me if I work, but then don't make as much as my, you know, all those things. And it's like, man, does that really like define me? Like it doesn't change who, who I am just because of what's in the bank account. And, um, I think a lot of that is going back to chapter one, the faulty beliefs that we just kind of adhere to because we've grown up in certain cultural rhythms or have been told things or things that haven't been told, but have been lived out. And, um, yeah, I, I don't have a, I don't have like a bow to wrap up my thoughts or whatever. I can, I can uh, add one to it for you then. So there's a, there's a quote by Teddy Roosevelt and all of you guys are familiar with it, but Teddy Roosevelt says that, that uh, comparison is the thief of joy. And yeah. so I think mm-hmm. that really, I mean, it's on a lot of what we talked about where, mm. you know, obviously you're talking a lot about as it relates to identity and comparison with others. But really, I think when it comes to finances, I think this uh, more of any of the mass that, you know, as we look at the rest of this chapter, the rest of this book, I feel like the material mask and finances is the area where I put value in, in comparison to others. I think that the other areas, I don't feel like I compare as much, but when it comes to finances, I compare and obviously Teddy was the man and, uh, had lots of good thoughts and, um, really lived a, 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 a solid life and pursued some strenuous stuff. And I think realizing that, yeah, when we compare ourselves, there's, you know, there's a lot of emptiness that can be in that. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Are you tired of being stuck at five foot nine? Did you get your bad height genes from your four, eight mother? For those guys that are trying to add some height to their lives. Now introducing height buddies. These bad boys just snap onto your standard shoes and get your standard shoes and give you those extra inches now available in platform height sizes of four inches, six inches, and eight inches. Why stay short when you can grow overnight? Height buddies, taking your short lived dreams to new heights. Every time. (laughs) That was good. Why why stay short? Also, are you tired of... (laughs) so true and now back to the show yeah because it never ends right like that that's the other that's the other part that i've experienced in the last few years uh again like traveling alongside my wife with her career path 
in, in residency being in pediatrics, it's very female dominated specialty. But the fun part about residency is everyone's literally older. You know, you got undergrad and four years of med school. And so with that, more people were married. So like there were a lot of dudes that were in my same shoes and a lot of those guys themselves had finished certain, you know, postgraduate work as well. Like whether it was law school or what are engineering certifications, um, whatever. And it doesn't, that temptation doesn't stop of like, you might hit your own personal goals or like, yeah, like, oh man, now I'm making this much or I have this title and stuff. But man, if, if it's like any of these topics I've talked about, it's not bad to pursue money, to steward money well, to be thrifty, to pursue a raise or a promotion, a nice house, you know, wealth, all those things. Those are not bad things. Um, just like being an athlete isn't a bad thing or being stoic is, you know, having emotion, not having emotions in certain situations. It's when those things can dominate our thoughts, our emotions, where we find identity in. And if something changes on us, that's out of our control. We don't get the raise that we thought, or somebody else gets promoted. or uh, We feel we're behind. We get fired. Our spouse or significant other makes more than us. These things that we have faulty beliefs on, we may not know at the time, but when we're faced with them, you know, they can really rattle us to our core. And that's why I think conversations like this are good. Being open about it, like I feel like we're doing and realizing like, like I've shared before, I I never thought about how much my dad made. I appreciated that he was home every night and that we had a relationship growing up. And I think when you get down to what are our cores, what are our values that we truly believe in that matter in life, prioritize those things above and beyond other material, literal material things like this chapter. And that's what really matters at the end of our life. Real quick. Uh, a note on Teddy though. He, I agree with what Stalen said. He was a solid dude, but he did name his son Kermit. <laughs> I feel like we had a we had a really good we had a really good bookend there, and then you threw that in. <laughs> man, we had a we had a moment. I was like, man, where, where's Thomas going with this? Have you guys thought about the fact that we live in the richest country in the world during the richest time in history, and we all graduated college, so we're already like in the most I don't want to say privileged, but it is like it's it's kind of amazing to think about how and it goes back to me to the saying the really, you know, I think it's another quote from the 1800s. Mo money, mo problems. <laughs> oh, yes. That was uh, I think that must uh, I think that was the pre-Victorian uh, era. Uh, yeah, I think that was Benjamin Franklin who said that. That sounds right. <laughs> mo money, mo Stanley problems. Steamer. And that's why they put them on the hundred dollar bill. It's so true. Yeah. Maybe we could just hit on, hit on the gratitude piece. Yeah. Lewis kind of wraps up the chapter talking about how having an attitude of gratitude might be the antidote for caring too much about wealth and being too materialistic. And he mentions that when we live in gratitude, life gives us more and it allows for more opportunities and for us to connect with others more about what we're grateful for and spread that vibe to everybody around us. And we've been taught to attach our self-worth to what we have and what we do, but 
we all know, you know, inherently the right way to think about it is that we're all valuable regardless of what we've got. If you're Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos, you're not any more valuable than the guy outside that's having a hard time down on his luck as a human being, obviously. I don't know. What do you guys think? I mean, we already hit on comparison. I think that's a big thing that saps gratitude from your life. What What else do you guys think? You know, something that either boosts gratitude in your life or or habits that really, yeah. you know, take yeah. it away. I think what would you say is a way that you guys have dealt with that and, and kind of been able to combat sort of some of these negative relationships with things like money and materialism? I think like, I feel like this is something where I've learned a lot from Fuzz as he's talked about gratitude, where you just have to do it. You just have to get in the practice of being thankful for things and choose. Yeah. Yeah. Choosing to spend the time to say, what am I thankful for today? And I know that the days that I end doing that and the days that Ruth and I talk about what we're thankful for or what, what we are excited about with today or what went well, those days always like end up ending better because there's, there's always things to be grateful for. There's always things that are happening that we can be thankful for no matter where you're at in life. Yeah. I I know we've been using this whole like U-Haul filling it up thing, but there's a country song and it goes like, you never seen a hearse with a trailer hitch. Mm. Uh, basically you're not taking your stuff with you when you leave. And on page 70, Howes basically says you cannot purchase connection and relationships. And I think that, you know, this really, this chapter kind of hits on the whole or sums up on the whole gratitude piece and being just thankful and grateful for what you have been provided with, what um, you've been bestowed with and connections, relationships, the the thing you cannot uh, monetize, right? Like our bond together, our relationship, um, the things in our life that, that actually matter. There's a lot to be grateful for and thankful for. And it, it doesn't require dollar signs. I appreciate what you're saying, man. Cause that, yeah, I think there's so much to be grateful for. There's so many good things that are, I don't know. I feel like I look at like our lives and how all of us have had these good things happen to us. And yeah. Good point. Yeah, that's good. You know what I think somebody might say when they listen to everything we've talked about today in this podcast is you guys are forgetting the part about how money matters a lot in life. And I'm a little afraid to come off as like, oh, yeah, just don't worry about anything. Your your career, your, you know, your income, you're still valuable no matter what. And then people are like, yeah, well, but the world doesn't value me, obviously, because I'm being taken advantage of while everyone else seems to be winning. You know, it's, it's so, really hard to cut through that reality and get down to like the feelings part of it, you know, cause there's so much evidence in the world that's contrary to, to those, yeah. those realities so, of like, you know, your worth truly. If yeah. this is the material mask, I just typed in materialism into Google a tendency to consider material possessions and physical comfort as more important than spiritual values. Mm. And that's something that we're definitely lacking in our culture, I think. But yeah, I don't think that we're necessarily bashing money. I think that we all recognize that money, but it's really resources that have been given to us, bestowed on us, right? Like how do we steward those resources? And if, we are taking our treasures and burying them in a field and not sharing them, not multiplying them with others, right? Like we are wasting 
talents. We're wasting those resources, right? If, if we've been given the opportunity to be fathers, how do we, uh, I don't know. I just, I don't think any of us are saying that money is, is bad. I think the over obsession. Yeah. I think it leads us down to a negative spiral that if we are placing our identity in it, then we're doing it backwards. the theory that money just amplifies whatever you are even more. Oh, yeah. So like, if, yeah. if you're basically like broke, but you really care about maybe your character and your, you know, kind of your spiritual self and just being a, a kind, good person. And then you become like you win the lottery. That's going to be multiplied. Or if you're somebody who doesn't think about those things, maybe you're more just worried about, you know, feeling comfortable all the time or showing off or, you know, being better than other people, you win the lottery, that's going to be amplified in a really negative way. And I mean, I think that's what we're talking about. I think we just have to really constantly reevaluate who are we as people. And then kind of the way that we, that we relate with money and use money is going to trickle down from there. Yeah. I think money is just such a touchy subject. Like there are definitely going to be some people that disagree with us. That's inevitable. Yeah. But yeah. Now we're, we're talking about our personal stories, how we feel, what the book is saying. And I think the core of it is just materialism doesn't make a man. It's who you are outside of that materialistic world. Thanks for tuning in to chapter three of the Books Brothers podcast for the material mask. Next week, we'll be discussing chapter four, and this will be a spicy one, the sexual mask. Oh, yes. Come strapped, come ready, boys. Oh, gosh. Oh, snap. Don't come strapped. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Strap. All right. Let's strap it. <laughs> Thanks for joining us this week on the Books Brothers podcast. If you haven't yet, buy or borrow the book we're going through and follow along with us. If you're listening on the Apple Podcast app or our Spotify app, please review or subscribe. Also, you can join the conversation by emailing us at connect at booksbrotherspodcast.com. Until next week. Read, reflect, and connect.